Hey, good morning, Faith Bridge. We're delighted to have you here. Thanks for joining us. My name is Duffy Robbins, and we're so grateful you've decided to uh, join us this morning. Uh, in, in their book, How to Hug a Hedgehog, 12 Keys for Connecting with Your Teenager, uh, Brad Wilcox and Jerry Robbins, no relation, begin by insisting that hedgehogs, despite their sharp, uh, painful quills, can be really, really cute and cuddly if you know how to hug them, which I'm thinking you could also say about alligators, but they assure us, no, 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 hedgehogs are delightful, uh, fascinating little animals. Apparently have a few odd quirks. Uh, they tend to favor foods that aren't particularly healthy. Uh, they like to sleep during the day. They get really active and, and like to roam around at night. And, and they can be sort of solitary and, and easily spooked unless they're comfortable with you. So, so maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, that, that does kind of sound like a, a teenager. But of course, all of us uh, who are watching this morning can be hard to hug from time to time, right? And sometimes any family, especially after a year of quarantine, can just feel like a den of hedgehogs. But learning how to hug well in a family of hedgehogs can mean the difference between true companionship and, and sharp, painful encounters. That's why families are the subject of our current series here at Faith Butch Church. This is week number three in a series we're calling Thrive, a series about how we can nurture life and vitality in our marriages and our families. Now, for the last two weeks, We've been talking about marriage, and for these final two weeks, we want to think together about family. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 6. Open your Bibles to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6, just a short passage in which the Apostle Paul writes these words. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me read that last verse one more time. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord the Lord. Um, those of you who read all the way through Ephesians chapter 6 know already that this chapter that begins with verse 1, children obey your parents, ends about 20 verses later with a lengthy passage about warfare and, and armor. And, and I'll bet there are some of you watching who would swear this cannot be a coincidence. Uh, it reminds me of one of my, my favorite jokes about these two little kids who um, were walking out of Sunday school. And, and I guess in Sunday school, they've been talking about about uh, demons and, and Satan. And as they were leaving, this one little guy says to his buddy, he said, you know, do, do you believe all that stuff they said in there about Satan? And his little friend just shook and said, oh, no, no, no. It, it's, it's like Santa Claus. It's our dad's. Whenever I do a seminar for parents and teenagers, I always share with the parents one fundamental principle. And in a very real way, it's a principle right at the heart of Paul's instruction here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. The principle is this. Rules without relationships almost always lead to rebellion. Rules without relationships almost always lead to rebellion. Now, most parents seem to 
uh, understand instinctively that rules are a good thing, right? Kind of comes with the territory. When you walk into the kitchen and, and somebody's eating peanut butter out of the jar while they're washing it down with milk that they're drinking directly out of the carton, it's, it's uh, sort of instinctive to think, okay, this is our kitchen, uh, not, not a watering hole in the Serengeti, and maybe we should have a few basic rules about snacking etiquette. But rules are actually good for children too. Now, if you're watching this morning and you're a middle schooler or a high school student, you, you may think I'm nuts, but in fact, if you're a teenager, some clear family rules are actually going to work out better for you in the long run. I'll tell you two reasons why. First of all, life without rules is not freedom. Life without rules is chaos. It's insecurity. Um, just, just, just let's do a mind experiment. Let's just suppose that when this uh, live stream was over, you, you, you uh, were going to leave the room and go outside and you were going to drive someplace. And just before you leave, you hear that uh, all traffic laws where you are have been suspended. No stoplights, no signs, doesn't matter which side of the road you're, you're on. Uh, you are totally free to drive wherever you want. Now, now that wouldn't make you freer to drive. That, that'd make you terrified to drive. That'd be chaos, right? That, 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 that would be like, like, like driving in New Jersey. So, so, so just total freedom, that doesn't, that doesn't offer us more security. It offers us chaos. Secondly, um, in kind of an odd way, rules actually provide space for freedom to happen. Uh, it's like on a football field, right? You have, you have boundaries, two boundaries and two goals. Now, if there weren't any boundaries, if there weren't any goals, you wouldn't have a game. No, nobody would know where to run. You, you might think you're doing a pretty good play and then somebody starts screaming, no, no, you're out of bounds. Uh, the lack of boundaries doesn't give you more freedom. It just kind of leaves you in the middle of the field, stuck and sort of you know waiting to get tackled or penalized. When a family doesn't have clear, consistent rules, somebody is always breathing down your neck because you've got to find out, do I have permission? No, you can't do that. Yes, you can do that. Well, we'll see about that. No, sweetheart, that's a felony. Good, consistent rules that everybody knows in advance can make the game a lot better for everybody. But having said that, Rules are not the glue that will hold a family together. And, and parents who think more rules and more authority are the best way to move a family forward are pumping on the wrong pedals. In fact, rules without relationships, to use Paul's words, can just be uh, irritating. In fact, the, the NIV rendering of this text uses the word exasperating. Exasperating. Paul writes in verse 4 that it can provoke Anger. And, and the word translated anger here literally means it can get to you in an up-close and personal way. And oh, moms, uh, before you start that kind of hand-squeezing thing with your husband, that means, honey, uh, he, he's talking to you. Let me just assure you that when Paul speaks to fathers here, he's really speaking to both parents. Uh, most commentators agree that, that Paul uses father here the same way he sometimes uh, writes to the brothers in the church when he clearly intends to speak to both the men and the women in the congregation. In fact, uh, just two verses earlier in Ephesians 6, Paul calls on children to obey your parents in the Lord. So the context suggests 
he's talking to moms and dads. In fact, the Good News Bible actually just translates the word parents. Parents. So Paul is calling parents here to hug their children carefully, tenderly, in a way that shows love with a strong, firm embrace, but in a way that doesn't provoke the sharp quills and withdrawal of anger. Question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? And how do these words in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 6 help us as parents nurture children who will thrive and grow into healthy young adults? Well, Paul gives parents in verse 4 two clear words of instruction. One positive, one negative. One that focuses on encouragement, another that focuses on uh, restraint. One that says, uh, bring them up, and another that says, essentially, don't bring them down. So let's, let's start with the negative. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, parents, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke your children to anger. Um, one of the most basic desires of our children, particularly as they move into the pre and early teen years, and we all know this, is the desire to begin making their own decisions, kind of call their own shots. Uh, the actual term for this is uh, autonomy, autonomy, which comes from two Greek words meaning, I want a car. I know literally it means self-rule. And, and, and nothing gets their quills up more than the feeling that their parents are trying to run their life. And that's why Paul begins his counsel to parents by calling on them to exercise restraint. Focus on the relationship, Paul says, not on the rules. Now, uh, you need to understand that in a typical Roman family of the first century, the father's authority was absolute. Uh, the commentator William Barclay describes it this way. A Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could, he could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He, he could take the law into his own hands because the law was in his own hands. He could punish as he liked. He could inflict literally the death penalty on his child. That was just everyday life in the typical Roman home. What Paul was saying to these believers in Ephesians 6 is that in a family where parents want to love like Jesus, we're called to a very different type of an authority. It's an authority that rules by letting go. It rules by letting go. Think of the way um, Paul describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count his authority a thing to be grasped. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever been rock climbing before. Maybe you've seen it in movies or in magazines and stuff. But, but when you go rock climbing, there's kind of two different ways to, to configure uh, the safety ropes. Uh, probably the most basic is just somebody uh, takes a, a, a trail up the backside of the cliff and, and, uh, and uh, from the top of the cliff, they kind of anchor themselves into a, a big rock or a tree. They wrap the rope around themselves and then drop that rope down the face of the rock. And then the climber down below uh, ties the rope around his or her midsection, and then they begin to climb. And, and if you're at the top of the rock, uh, your job is to actually, as the climber climbs up, 
to make sure that you're taking the slack out of the rope. This is called being on belay, on belay. It's a, it's a French term, and it's an important job because, because uh, you have to have the right amount of tension in the rope. If you, if you grab the rope too tight, uh, okay, that, that's, that's not going to give the climber freedom to climb, but if you hold it too loosely uh, and the climber falls, then, then they could fall a long way. So there's a tension there. That's why it's such a great picture of effective parenting because there are basically two common mistakes that we make as parents. Mistake number one, uh, and, and frankly, this is the sort of mistake that a lot of us probably who are watching might tend to make. Some parents, we, we love Jesus, we, we love our children, and so we grip the rope too tight. Because, because we know the risks out there. We know it's dangerous. We're afraid they're going to fall, so we, we just grab the rope and we grip it tight. And that doesn't give our children uh, the freedom to climb and, and, and build confidence and, and test themselves. And, and it takes all the fun and the adventure out of the climb. That's not climbing. That's, that's hoisting. And that's a pain in the neck. That's probably going to provoke some anger. In fact, we all know it, it, it makes some kids angry enough that they just want to reach out and, and cut the rope altogether. So, so parents, yeah, you still have the rules. You have a strong grip on the rope. There's only one problem. You've lost the connection. They don't have the relationship. That's mistake number one, gripping the rope too tight. Mistake number two is just the opposite. Some parents grip the rope too loose too loose. Maybe, maybe they're afraid their child will rebel, and so they just, they just drop the rope so they can avoid the tension, the hard conversations, the tough decisions, and, and just kind of keep the peace. Or, or, or maybe it's the parent who's just too busy with their own upward climb, too busy living their own life. They don't, they don't have time to sit there and patiently do the work of, of hard parenting. But for whatever reason, if nobody's on belay, nobody's gripping that rope, then then when there is a fall, it can be a long, hard one. And sooner or later, that's going to provoke some anger and bitterness too. The art of parenting is learning to exercise authority without provoking the climber. It's realizing that rules are good. And, and parents, please hear that. Sometimes you will have to grip the rope with all your strength. But at the end of the day, it's the relational rope that holds families together. And what that means is that as our children grow up and, and sort of gain more experience with the climb, little by little, uh, as they mature, we have to relinquish our grip on the rope. And that's scary, right? Because we love them. We, we don't want them to fall. But, you know, one of the great ironies of parenting is that sometimes by trying to keep our child safe, we actually expose them to greater risk. It's like, it's like the woman who said, I am not letting my child go near a swimming pool until he learns how to swim. Well, that's great. There's only one problem. You can't learn how to swimming pool, how to swim until you go near a swimming pool. And you go, yeah, but he might get in over his head. That's right. That's right. And, and sometimes that's how you learn how to swim. That's how you learn how to float. You remember that uh, narrative in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son? Um, the father who, who in the parable we're, we're meant to understand is God, actually lets his son leave for the far country. Now, when you think about that, that's kind of astonishing. He, he had the authority to make his son stay home, but, but his was a love that ruled 
by letting go. Wise parents understand that if we want our children to thrive and become healthy, independent adults, little by little, we have to relinquish our grip and trust the rope into the hands of God because our heavy-handed, tight-fisted authority will only provoke our children to anger. And that's the negative instruction Paul gives the parents. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't bring them down. But then focusing on the positive, in the latter part of verse 4, Paul writes, do bring them up. Do bring them up. Bring them up in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Literally in the Greek, it could be translated, feed them. Uh, nurture them with a healthy diet of discipline and instruction. Not just discipline, not, not just instruction, but discipline and instruction. Now you might be thinking, well, sure, but like, what's, what's the difference? Well, let, let's, let's start with that word discipline. The word Paul uses here for discipline, paideia, uh, would be learning through uh, experience. So sort of learn by doing. In short, uh, paideia is, is teaching by accountability. One of the most common ways I think we handicap our children um, is by creating for them kind of this never-never land where there's no accountability, where, where bad choices have no consequences. And of course, most of us as parents do this for all the right reasons, but it's still the wrong thing to do. Uh, one of the consistent themes in the Old Testament about child raising is that punishment and accountability are critical to the task. Proverbs 13, 4, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Again, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. That means an important element of parental nurture is learning how to use consequences well. Now, a lot of times when I'm talking to parents of teenagers, I'll remind them that they're kind of, there's kind of two different types of consequences. And, and wise parents need to understand the value of both. Uh, first of all, there, there are what we might describe as natural consequences. Natural consequences. Natural consequences um, are uh, consequences that occur as a natural uh, result of a choice that has been made, good or bad. So if your child uh, touches a hot stove, there's a natural consequence to that decision, right? They're, they're going to get burned. Um, and, 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 and natural consequences can be very, very convincing as a teacher. They can also be very, very harsh as a teacher. But I would bet a lot of us who are watching this morning would agree that one of the, we, one of the ways we've probably learned how to make good decisions was by making bad decisions. That's the power of natural consequences. But there's another important tool for parents to use in teaching through accountability, and that's logical consequences. Logical consequences. Logical consequences are, are consequences created uh, that, that both parents and child agree on in advance. Usually, it takes the form of uh, if A, then B. Like if, if this happens, then, then this is going to happen. And parents um, use logical consequences when 
Well, first of all, no natural consequence exists, right? So, so uh, Jimmy's out in the driveway on his skateboard, and Mom uh, yells, "Honey, uh, time to come in now. Uh, you need to do uh, your geometry homework." And and Jimmy goes, "Oh, Mom, uh, geometry's stupid. I, I don't like it." And and Mom uh, earnestly looks out there and says, "Jimmy, don't you understand, son? If you don't do your geometry homework, you're not going to learn how to." Uh, uh, you're not going to learn how to figure out the error within a trapezoid. And Jimmy's kind of going, okay, okay, I can, I can live with that. And you know what? He's right. He, he, he can live with that. You can live a long and fruitful life without knowing how to figure out the error within a trapezoid. I know this because I know how to figure out the error within a trapezoid. And I've been waiting my entire life for somebody to say, we got a bunch of trapezoids over here. Does anybody know how to figure out the error? Then? And I go, I do. Nobody has ever asked. And so Jimmy's going, you know what? I don't really think uh, I am motivated to study geometry because of the risk I might not know how to figure out the area than a trapezoid. So he doesn't perceive any kind of uh, natural consequence. So mom has to kind of uh, think about, okay, what can I do to build in a consequence? And that's kind of where the second reason for a logical consequence kicks in. Um, there is a natural consequence, but but... But the child doesn't see it. Jimmy doesn't see it. And so mom says, no, honey, you, no, listen, I know you don't like geometry, and I know you don't think it matters, but if you don't do well uh, on, on this geometry test, you're going to flunk this class. And if you flunk this class, you, you're probably going to have to repeat this grade. And, and, and Jimmy says, but mom, don't you get it? It doesn't matter. I don't need to do well in school. I'm going to be a professional skateboarder. So, so, so at this point, logical consequences have to be created so Jimmy can appreciate the seriousness of his situation. But for logical consequences to be most effective, they need to be shaped by what I call the three R's. The three R's. First of all, the consequence has to be related to the offense. So uh, your son brings home the car without any gas in it, and, and you say, okay, uh, we're going to have to sell your tuba. So I'm like, like what does that have to do with it? That, that's, that consequence is not related to the offense. That's not a very good teacher. Secondly, the consequence has to be reasonable. has to be reasonable. So again, son brings the car home. There's no gas in it. You say, okay, sweetheart, you know what that means? That means you, you're not going to be able to date until Jesus comes back, okay? That, that's, that's a consequence that's disproportionate to the offense, right? That's going to that's gonna provoke anger. And thirdly, logical consequences need to be respectful. Nothing brings the hedgehog out of any of us faster than being subjected uh, to, to sarcasm and ridicule when we do something wrong. Uh, th that's what Paul's getting at in that uh, parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, when he writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. Now, of course, these consequences might be painful. Uh, accountability might be unpleasant, but that doesn't mean it's unloving. Uh, in fact, this same Greek word, paideia, discipline, is the exact word the writer of Hebrews used in Hebrews chapter 12 when he wrote, Discipline is sometimes quite unpleasant, but both earthly fathers and the heavenly father exercise it for our good. Call it tough love. Call it 
severe mercy. If we want our children to thrive, we need to bring them up with discipline and accountability. But Paul also uses that word instruction, instruction. Uh, The Greek word means literally putting in the mind. Uh, If discipline is training through experience, uh, instruction is, is, is training by our words. And of course, there are a lot of important ways we parents need to do this kind of nurture. But I want us this morning to consider one very practical means of instruction that can help your child to thrive, and that's encouragement. Encouragement. Think of it as catching your child in the act of doing something good. Because instruction is not just pointing out what someone did wrong, but pointing out what someone did right. It was Martin Luther who said, spare the rod and spoil the child. That's true. But beside the rod, give an apple to give him. Have an apple to give him when he has done well. Now, uh, Luther didn't specify whether that should be a phone or an iPad. Just kidding. But, but clearly, encouragement is an important means of feeding the mind of a child. Because, because see, here's the, here's the problem, uh, especially if you're a teenager. In our culture today, um, there are about five ways that you're going to get any kind of encouragement. Um, and, and they all begin with the letter A. In fact, I, I call them the straight A's. Um, they are basically, if you're a teenager, you're going to get some kind of affirmation because uh, academically you're really doing great in school. You're really good in school. You're smart. Uh, secondly, you're going to get affirmation because you're good at athletics. You're, you're, you're good in sports. Third, uh, you're going to get affirmation maybe if you are good at art, like you have uh, some gift in performing art or some uh, gift in visual arts. Fifth, uh, if you're good looking in in your world, if you're good looking, you're probably going to get some uh, props for your appearance, right? Uh, And then finally, if you're a teenager, maybe among your peers, you're going to get some kind of affirmation because, you know, because you got attitude, like you just, you're just bad, The problem is uh, you can excel in all of those things and be a lousy human being. When Paul talks about discipline and instruction of the Lord, he's talking about qualities and traits that aren't going to show up on a college application or or a trophy shelf or or a high school transit. That calls for a very intentional kind of encouragement. Um, let Let me give you some examples. That kind of instruction, for example, might involve watching for character traits that you can praise. Um, so, so let's say, for example, um, you, you say, hey, uh, you know, Shelly, uh, I, I promise I wasn't eavesdropping, but the other night you were on your phone in the kitchen and your mom and I were in the den and I didn't even know who you were talking to or who you were talking about. But, um, but apparently this other person was bad-mouthing uh, one of your friends. And all I know is at one point I heard you say, look, uh, if you have stuff that you don't like about her, you need to go to her about that. I love both of you guys. Uh, this just feels like gossip to me. And, and I turned to your mom. I said, you know what? Our little girl has guts. You have principles. I, I respect that. That's, that's what it means to sort of catch your child in the act of doing something good. That's, that's praising character traits. Or, or, or maybe it's something like this. Hey, Bobby, dude, I want to tell you something. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't want to embarrass you, but honestly, I was impressed. Uh, I don't know if you remember last Wednesday night, 
when everybody was here and you guys were all getting ready to go out to, to club or something, and, um, and Stevie was late, and everybody wanted to ditch him. Everybody wanted to take off. Um, all of a sudden, in the middle of it, I heard one voice, and it was your voice saying, ladies, we are not going to leave until Stevie gets here. We would want him to wait for us. We're going to wait for him. It's cool. Just chill. And it just reminded me, one of the traits that I really admire about you is that you are loyal. Loyalty is something you don't see a lot these days. I respect that about you. So that, that's affirming a character. Or, or, or maybe something like this. You know, Jeremy, uh, you know, just, just looking here at, at, at your report card. You know, obviously, you are not cheating. So, so, so that, that's what it means to kind of uh, find character traits that you can praise. But I'll tell you another way this kind of encouragement plays out is you praise progress. You, you praise progress. Now, sure, some parents provoke their kids to anger because it just feels like there's always a, a moving target. But I think for a lot of parents, the greater temptation is to sort of imply that until you get a bullseye, you're totally missing the target. Praise progress. Praise improvement. In your encouragement, let them hear gratitude, not exactitude. Okay, okay. Maybe he didn't hang up his towel, but at least he folded it nicely and placed it on the back of the toilet. Like, like you know, just praise progress. And then lastly, when you affirm, affirm with no strings attached. You know, one of our Favorite motivational tools as parents is we love to do stuff like this. Our child comes to us really psyched because here's the grade they got and uh, and it looks pretty good. And we look down and say, "Oh, that's that's wonderful. That is fantastic, Mel. Uh, you got a B plus on your book report." But just think, if only you'd worked a little harder, you could have gotten an A minus. That's not affirmation. That's, that's accusation. That's, that's putting pepper on a cupcake. When you encourage your child, let them lavish in it. Let them experience grace. Let them experience unmerited favor. Of course, there's more they could do. There's more you could do. But to instruct our children is to bring them up in the knowledge of the Lord, not to bring them down lest they become discouraged. And as parents, we help our children thrive not by bringing them down, but by bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I got the email about a month before Easter. The writer, a mom, uh, is a dear friend of mine. She was writing to me to ask for prayer. The first line of her email pretty much told the whole story. She wrote, our son decided it was time to go public. After all, he wrote, if people can talk freely about their faith, they should be able to talk freely about their non-faith. Her son had posted online an account of his decision to leave the Christian faith. His post was forthright, sad, and acutely painful for his parents to read, both of whom are committed Christians. In fact, my friend wrote, my tears are not spent yet. My prayers are not finished yet. My hope is not faint yet, but my heart is shredded and torn, and it aches to high heaven. I was thinking about that email this morning because I know we have some parents who are watching this sermon right now whose hearts are shredded and, and torn and aching to high heaven, which, which doesn't make Paul's words in Ephesians 6 less true, but it sure can make them hard to hear. 
And that's why I want us to close this morning by making sure we hear this. Whether you are a parent, a, a child, a grandparent, married or unmarried, what the scripture teaches us is that all of us are rebellious children. In fact, Paul writes just a few chapters earlier in this letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 3, that all of us have turned our backs on our Father in heaven and that we are children of wrath by nature. That all of us, all of us by nature are born with this crazy idea that we can sort of make the climb on our own and we don't need God to hold the rope. Thank you very much. But God so loved the world and, and so desired that each of his children would, would thrive and flourish in life that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the consequences that we owe for our sin so that even though we broke all the rules, even though we provoked the father to anger, he restored the relationship by sending his son to die on the cross. And what that means, what that means is that the story's not over yet. Not for your child, not, not for my friend's child, not even for the parent who might be watching this morning, listening to these words from Ephesians 6 and feeling as if they sort of trapped themselves on a cliff of regrets and, and anger and lost opportunities. What that means is there's still hope. But this is so important. That hope begins with each of us realizing that the big question, that the pivotal question is, is not really what is your relationship with your child? Uh, what is your relationship with your spouse? What is your spouse's relationship with your child? Or what is your child's relationship with you? The big question is, what is your relationship with your heavenly father? Jesus put it this way. Jesus put it this way. Seek first the kingdom. And then all this other stuff, marriage, family, all these other things will be added unto you. Let's pray. Lord, I know that uh, as we talk through some of these uh, ideas this morning, they can be quite painful. There are some of us who are listening who are, who are burdened because there is a breach in the relationship, because the, the rope has been cut, because we've lost connection with our children. It just feels like they're out there uh, hanging by themselves, and, and we grieve over this loss. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us today recognize that there is still a father who will not desert us or our children, and that you would give us some peace, Lord, that the story is not yet over. I also know, Lord, there are folks watching this morning who are not necessarily burdened, but they are deeply bitter. Because even as we go through this text, they think about their own parents. They think about uh, opportunities that were missed. They think about uh, the, uh, swim meets and games that nobody came to. They think about hurtful words that were spoken. Maybe they even think about a parent that walked out of the family altogether. And what they think about when they think about parents provokes them to anger because they are the child who wondered, where was this love I needed on that cliff? Lord, even that kind of bitterness and resentment needs to be healed by the Father. This morning, 
Would you come and move us? Help us to recognize that you have brought us healing in Christ. The only way we can truly thrive is in a relationship with you. Help us to start there. And then all these other things, all these other things can be added to us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.